Blog Talk Radio. teacher 
college instructor and construction worker, a true holistic man. I like that. He currently writes and speaks full-time and lives in Pennsylvania with his family. So I'm very pleased to have you both on today on A Better World Radio to talk about these themes that we're, it's like the world is sort of um, crowding us out in so many ways. It appears, it appears uh, with the uh, globalization corporate movement at hand, which seems to so minimize the importance of human values of human labor, of the planet herself as a living being. There's virtually no recognition of what is scientifically known. And that, of course, applies to what is going on in our world with climate change. So I would like to open up with, uh, at a time where it does feel a bit hopeless, to quote Vandana Shiva from actually the film that we just featured, The Economics of Happiness, who said at its very beginning, quote, I see more hope than hopelessness. That was inspiring to hear. Helena and Charles, both welcome to the show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Good. Thanks. And, you uh, may have to yeah. speak up a wee bit there, Helena, okay. since you're yep. Can you way up me? north. Yes, Can now you it's hear great. Me? Yep. Okay. Yes. And Charles, you're with us? Charles is not with not, us. Not with us. Not just yet. Okay. Here we go. Who are you? I just saw I, him. Charles, you hear me? there you are. Welcome to the yeah. show. Sorry yeah, I can that. hear you. Okay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That must be very frustrating. I, you know, that might actually be quite a metaphor for the way we are all speaking in this world and not being heard by the powers that be. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks people people like Helena have been that. shouting people like Helena have been shouting the truth from the rooftops for twenty or thirty years now and it does exactly. seem exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. Well that's why we're glad to convene this uh this forum, this round table, as well as the event taking place that you have staged, Helena, called, as I've just mentioned, uh Voices of Hope in a time of crisis. We're so clearly uh facing uh, time of crisis. We've been in it for a while, depending on who you are and what you see. Um, but uh, I'd like just to hear from you for a moment about what that means to you and why is it that you have put this together all the way from uh, Australia in the Big Apple here in New York City. Well, uh, because as Vandana said, you know, she sees more hope than hopelessness around the world and Having worked now for almost 40 years at the grassroots around the world, I'm still inspired and hopeful by what I see as a genuine desire on the part of the majority of people to live in more cooperative, more healthy, more sustainable ways. When you just look at the mainstream media, it is easy to become completely overwhelmed and depressed. And the reality is that we do have to be alarmed. We have to be feeling a sense of urgency because I'm afraid that most governments, in fact all governments to my knowledge now, are bowing under the pressure of globalized trillions of dollars of wealth. You know, the speculative economy linked 
to giants who are stomping around the world and yes. as acting as a type of mega machine, chewing up resources, chewing up societies, and that is alarming. But once you really get in touch with the reality that the majority of people are neither driving that machine nor wanting to have that machine, there is room for hope. And I suppose the main thing that we're trying to do is to bring clarity on how it is that we've ended up in this situation. How is it that banks and corporations have so much power? And how is it that whether you vote left or right, you end up with the same essentially corporate system? Once we understand that better, it becomes far easier to see what we need to do. And the, yes. the acts that we need to engage in are right away as we start taking steps to rebuild the local fabric, immediately we can feel the rewards of connecting to other people and connecting to nature. And that's sort of yes. a, a very fundamental part of the of, new economy. Uh, it reminds me of the phrase, uh, you know, the tail wags the dog. When you really look at the matter scientifically and mathematically, it's almost sort of like a bad New Yorker cartoon that so few people are running the, uh, are the captains of industry running the ship and uh, the spaceship, as Buckminster Fuller called it, into the ground as readily as it is. But I'm also reminded of uh, the great work of um, uh, the, Co- the uh, College of Commerce and Blessed Unrest author, name just flew out of my mind. Paul Paul Hawken. Uh, Paul Hawken, thank you. Uh, I recently met in New York at the time of the climate march, which was just a a wonderful moment because I've been a real Mm -hmm. fan of his for so many years. But his last book, uh, Blessed Unrest, lays out that there are at least a million different NGOs and community groups um, and nonprofits and even on social enterprise, uh, capitalistically based companies that care the world about the outcome, that care deeply about human values and planetary sustainable values, and are working diligently and nonstop around the clock to move us toward a new kind of, uh, you know, the new economics, so to speak. So I'm I'm always heartened when I remember Paul Hawken and uh, that work and what's happening, as you say, Elena, on the ground. Charles, I'd love yeah. to turn to you right now and say, from your view, because you have a, a really interesting holistic view in so many ways, what do you see as uh, our biggest challenge and what do you see as our uh, best solution? Mm, yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, one one thing I've observed is that it's not only kind of the grassroots people that Helena is talking about who are fed up with the way things are, but even the people in positions of power uh, don't really um, they don't fully believe in the system that they are operating, mm-hmm. and they feel helpless to do anything different. Mm-hmm. They're kind of more like functionaries of a system rather than like the evil perpetrators of the system. And if they deviate too much from the prescribed roles that they occupy, then they get cast aside and somebody else steps into the role who will um, appropriately carry out its functions. Uh, And and 
you know, it's not like so. It's not like there's a conspiracy behind it, but it's just that that what is considered you know responsible behavior, or what, and it's not even well. It's not only that. It's also what will satisfy the demands of the uh, international bond markets. You know, so you had, um, I believe this was Evo Morales uh, in in Bolivia. You know, saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, world." I can't remember if it was that or if it was in Ecuador, but but basically saying, you know, mm-hmm. it might have been Ecuador, actually. You know, we've got all these petroleum reserves, and we could uh, cut down the rainforests and drill and, and get the reserves and and sell that money. Or how about the whole world come together and pay us to keep the oil in the ground? Well, yes. the whole world didn't come together. And so it's like, okay, you know, we're going to have to drill this oil and and well-meaning environmentalists in the West would, you know, would condemn that choice. But if we, um, at the same time, maintain a global financial system that puts constant debt pressure on countries like that and, and constant pressure to somehow generate foreign exchange, then we're being hypocritical, you know, to say, to say, keep paying your debts, find something to convert into commodities and into money and don't do that <laughs> you know don't drill don't right. clear cut don't exploit like it's hypocritical so i think that maybe the greatest challenge um is really deep systemic change which itself involves narrative change uh the kind of worldviews that underlie the seeming normalcy of the system that we live in so what's yes. a Big, a big knot that that all of us are kind of tugging on and pulling, trying to unravel each in our own way. Mm. But yeah, also, I think exactly. we need to remember that even in the industrialized countries, the same pressure—you um, know, the biggest debt is the U.S. So the the pressure uh, to extract more wealth and to keep running to pay off debt is is now global and universal. And, you know, how do we end up in yeah. this situation that governments yes. are indebted to banks and they run scared, really worried about what credit agencies think of them, and governments worldwide are getting poorer and poorer in relation to this globalized private wealth in the big banks and big corporations. How did that happen? And yeah. I think that's Exactly. How did, but I'll tell you, talking about New Yorker cartoons, I even in growing up in a U.S. history textbook, I remember when I was all of 16 years old, seeing um, a cartoon that I'll never forget, which was uh, a small circle of politicians in a circle surrounded by an outer circle of the likes of J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers and the Astors and the Carnegies. And inside, the politicians were sweating and they were shaking and they were nervous and anxious. And the uh, big fat cat, you know, uh, uh, capitalists at the time, the Pullmans, had uh, a money sign on their belly with a big fat cigar in their mouth, you know? So even going back, you know, almost 200 years, while much has, of course, changed, the relationship between big money and government 
wasn't altogether different, but I'd like to hear you both weigh in on that. Well, I mean, I would I would say that the relationship did change. In other words, from my perspective, looking at what happened globally, I, you know, we've had we've had other you know so-called civilizations that invaded other cultures and spaces, you know, from Genghis Khan onwards. But the sort of biggest invaders of all were the Europeans who spread across the world enslaving yes. and, and conquering and, you know, starting with the Crusades and so on. And then with the rise of, of this global economy from Europe, what was imposed on people around the world was essentially was slavery and genocide if they didn't convert their resources to wealth for these big wealthy traders, primarily in Europe. That, that in the beginning, was led by the kings and, the, and governments, but gradually, yeah. as these traders, you know, the Dutch East India Company and so on, as they gained more and more wealth and became more and more powerful, they started outstripping governments. And really, I see a big watershed after the Second World War when the Bretton Woods institutions were set up. The GATT was set up. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade was set up at the same time as the World Bank and the IMF. Unfortunately, many people who were worried about the power of corporations and banks didn't pay attention to this process of treaties. It's sort of it's amorphous, it's a process, it's not a nice building that you can put on a photo, it's not a thing that you can look at. So quietly, this process of trade treaties, I see as systemically, I see that as the center of this knot that we're trying to unravel and that we're trying to unravel, first of all, intellectually, and we need to do it bloody quickly because new trade treaties on the table are taking this process of trade treaties to yet another level, and now it's essentially becoming law that foreign investors and foreign corporations have more power than your government. And so if your government tries to protect its environment or its citizens, it will be sued uh, for in any way impeding the profits of foreign corporations. This is complete madness. Now, for me, yeah. what's very hopeful about this is I think the biggest problem is that most people don't understand this. So to me, yeah. in terms of Charles and I may differ a bit, but for me, a lot of the narrative is actually making explicit and visible changes that most people have not been tracking and have not understood. And I think that's extremely hopeful because I think once that's put out on the table, put out into the daylight, I really believe that, as Charles was saying, it's not just the people of the grassroots, but the people in power will also say, wait a minute, we're going in a direction that is completely incompatible with any form of sustainability, democracy, anything we care about. So for me, this is part of, of what we're trying to do is to lay that out while recognizing the urgent need to rebuild the social fabric um, at the local level and one of the most expedient, systemic, and wonderful ways of doing that is to rebuild local economic structures. Yes, I I think that's right. I want to add to that that uh, the treaties such as the last, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, has clauses in it. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, the, yes. The, the, the Transatlantic uh, Trade and Investment Partnership also, yeah. Yes. 
Uh, and by the way, in your film, Helena, you, you lay out, you have a whole section dedicated to the importance of the treaties, and I, I think that's a very potent part of the whole film. It's all very good, uh, but I think it's really a quintessential part of it. I have on my website at abetterworld.tv uh, an article that I've kept there for some time, Help Stop Infinito Gold's $1 billion lawsuit against Costa Rica. Infinito mm -hmm. Gold is a Canadian mining company which just mm -hmm. slapped Costa Rica, the government, with a $1 billion lawsuit because the nation decided to protect its rainforests rather than host an open pit gold mine. And this is the kind of, um, the kind of lawsuit and litigation exactly. that would proceed from the exactly. TPP and the transatlantic, as you say. And it, it actually subordinates all governments to the will of such uh, institutions as the WTO and, you know, their, and, their, and these their private cronies. corporations. And, you know, and in the Sweden, there's a company Sedmish. called yeah. Waterfall, lovely name, nuclear power yes. company, that's suing Germany for $3.7 because they decided to phase out nuclear power. And as I say, I really think even within the corporate world and certainly within governments, uh, that the vast majority of people would not want to see this kind of thing happening. But yeah. we ha the system has become so large, and these treaties are you know, in the form of, of pages and pages of obscure legalistic language, almost exactly. completely incomprehensible. So we really it's need designed, to actually, designed to... Um, alienate the reader <laughs> because it's so inhuman. Charles, you made a good point before that many of the uh, executives in these companies and officers really don't have their heart in what they're doing at all. They're doing it for a paycheck. They're doing it because they have earned what they feel is prestige in their circles. There is all sorts of uh, keeping up with uh, the Joneses and the Markowitzes, however you want to put it. Right. And, uh, yeah, but, and but it's it's very empty, and it's actually it's actually becoming a pub, public health problem as well. Would you comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean they're also subject to to you know all kinds of financial pressures, and they're also uh, enmeshed in a story that says that what they're doing is, if not good, at least inevitable, necessary, and there's no alternative. And that's why I think. Yes. Um, that you know, uh, uh, campaigns to stop the TTIP and the and the other um, you know trade treaties, and there's a bunch of them, are really important not only because um, of the immediate goal of stopping these devices that will facilitate the conversion of the planet into product and into money, yes, but also commodities. Because yeah, but also because the education that has to accompany this campaign will um, awaken people to resist other ways of accomplishing that conversion of nature into death. You know, uh, because yeah. you know, like these are just the latest and most sophisticated of um, a long history, as Helena was saying, going back to GATT and even before. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are many ways in which, uh, you know, that, that corporations and banks and the governments that they control can demolish local resistance uh, to these kinds of policies. You know, like this, this yeah. lawsuit that you were just talking about against Costa yeah. Rica. I mean, that's happening 
you know, even without uh, the next phase of these. Yeah, w- without these last you know, treaties passing, exactly. Yeah, I know I've so, done so several like, shows, a few shows on these. Yeah. On these treaties, and, and, and as, even if there isn't a treaty, you know, even if there isn't a even if there isn't a treaty, I mean, John Perkins talks about this stuff. You know, if a company do, if a yeah. country doesn't cooperate in exactly. in its service to the international bond markets, then well, you That's know, right. how about funding the quote democratic opposition, or how about a coup, or how about an invasion? That's right. You know, and and exactly. and so, so I think like yeah, um, it's it's important. It is important to oppose these uh, horrible. Uh, new treaties but it's not like it's not enough you know if if those get stopped then something else is going to come up and something else is going to come up and that's why we also as we do that and maybe even using the vehicle of those campaigns we have to um, change the deeper level narratives that say uh, this is just the way the world is and we can't afford to do anything else uh, and after all, you know, technology and science are marching forward and and economic growth is good and necessary and and we know better than the rest of the world what they need. So we're going to bring development to them. I mean, like like this mindset goes really really deep. And yes, I think it does. we just have to work on all levels. Yeah. But I'll but tell you, I, I agree with you really completely. Important uh, part, yes, a really please. Really important Hi. part of this is also this is what we try to do in local futures is to set side by side with that critique and trying to build up what we call resistance. We also spell out what the renewal looks like. We also want people immediately to realize that it's an absolute myth that there is no alternative. There are millions of alternatives. And it's so inspiring to be in touch with the so-called less developed world uh, because there you can see some of those still. You can see a fabric of society where there's still much more intergenerational contact. You can see a way of life where there's a much deeper contact with nature, with animals, with the living world around us. And so this is partly what we're doing at our Voices of Hope Symposium. Yes. It's bringing together a global group with a global vision and presenting that real hope, not just as a vision, but also providing examples of living both old and new strategies to reweave the fabric of life, to reweave our sense of connection, you know, starting even within our own bodies, you know, connecting our minds to our hearts, being more in tune with the life within us is part of the beginning of it. And that is a journey that can produce happiness, I mean, almost immediately, which is why we yes. also call it the economics of happiness. So I really sure. want the boot, to listen to be aware. Of happiness. That, yeah. 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 You know, you're very right. It's, it's very much a fractal relationship between uh, our micro selves, so to speak, which are really not micro at all. We're quite macro. But it is so much between the way we relate to our own bodies and minds and the way we maintain our own health and sense of yeah. uh, self well, and well-being. everything in a mechanistic way. You know, we've been taught to see our right. own selves in a mechanistic way as a machine. And the whole world That's right. That's machine. part of the That's narrative, Charles, you were speaking about as well. I'd love to yeah. run something. First, let's let everybody know that on November 8th, uh, there is going to be an event at the Great Hall of Cooper Union uh, that you really would like to get because 
Charles is going to be there. Helena's organization is one of the main sponsors of it. It's called The Voices of Hope in a Time of Crisis. This is something that hits the hearts and minds of all of us. And we need to speak with each other. We need to be social around the subject of how to grapple with, deal with, come to terms with, and act upon solutions so we can uh, really move forward in a sustainable, humane kind of way. Information about signing up for that one-day event with some just wonderful people, including Helena, of course, and Charles Eisenstein, both guests today uh, will be there and you can read all about them at our website at betterworld.tv it's all laid out there uh, just to remind you uh, this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World we're on every Wednesday at 6pm and I know most of you listen in archive and that's just fine and I love to hear from you from your phone calls or your emails at mjr at abetterworld.net it keeps the dialogue going between myself and the audience who thankfully are all over the world and we're so grateful for your for your time and attention. So I'd like to run something by you both, if I may, uh, coming from my voice as an old hippie and uh, this idea, you know, that Rodney King kind of put out on the West Coast many years ago, why can't we all get along? It may sound funny, but, <clears throat> you know, as a psychotherapist, as a communications coach for decades at this point, I have what may be, and I want to kind of kick the tires on this and get your opinions, uh, this naive notion that if people were to engage in intelligent enough dialogue, funny enough dialogue, and I kid you not, playful enough dialogue that shows like a good comedian the peculiarities in our thinking, the bizarreness of some of our belief systems, like the two of you just laid out a few of them, that it must be this way, we have no alternatives, business will be what it is, business is above everything, uh, you know, it's just business, so who cares if heads roll, people die, people are trafficked, people are labored down to their, to their fingers, etc., 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 I believe that if we could engage on the highest levels as well as on the grassroots, but let's talk about the captains of industry right now, and then to follow them, you know, the, uh, the tail wagging the dog, the politicians, if we could really sit down with the heads of such corporations as Monsanto and others, these big corporate giants that we are feel so offended by, uh, but we were to sit down in an atmosphere of... Um, some collaboration, and just have some really deep, heartfelt, meaningful conversations about the nature of life, the nature of reality, the nature of sustainability. Do you think, each of you, that we could actually come to some middle ground where profits would be preserved, but the pathology would be reduced if not eliminated? I would say Elena, no. Would you pick up on that first? No. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Well, I I actually believe that there is a possibility that we can have structures that would allow for a certain degree of profit, where you know some people who wanted to work harder at earning a bit more money, 
could save a bit, and I I think we could have banks that would be held in check and that would actually be doing what most people believe they do, which is holding wealth uh, for, yeah. for society. But I believe that the conversation would have to be much more about these hidden structures that most people simply don't understand. We've built myth upon myth or no over a couple of hundred years now. And, and you know, it, it's as, as Charles was saying earlier, I mean, these myths, you know, they, they're part of our education system. They're part of what's happening in science. And I think in reassessing the basics, you know, for instance, one of the things that has to be spelled out is that small-scale, diversified farms produce far more food per unit of land and water the myth about, oh, we've got to feed the global population, we've got to have large monocultures, large supermarkets, is an absolute, it's a lie. But the people who promote yeah. that lie really believe it. And so we're talking about taking away a lot of assumptions that do serve a, a small elite that is extracting wealth. But above all, I think the problem has been the structures of wealth creation, the type of banking structures and corporate structures that have turned businesses into these global machines. And they've Mm -hmm. grown and grown in such a way that it's as though our arms have grown so long we can't see what our hands are doing. And when we, you know, as ordinary citizens or politicians or even working in these corporations support these myths, we're ending up supporting the growth of a system that is a suicidal system. So, you know, and some some of the other myths have to do with uh, this idea that um, the system is being pushed by our consumer greed. No, that consumer greed was actually manufactured by corporations who used, uh, among other things, Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, to actually yes. intervene, to to go into the deepest psyche of children and promote the myth that if they want to be loved, if they want to have the approval and feel connected to, belong to a group, they've got to have the latest running shoes, they've got to have the latest iPad. And this is, mm-hmm. this is a, a really evil aspect of this system that is perverting what is truly a universal human need, truly universal human need to be loved, particularly in children. And as this need gets converted into a need to consume, as children desperately run down that path, they end up a source of envy and separation, exactly the opposite effect of what they're looking for, and that fuels further alienation, further consumerism. So again, exactly. yeah. So I'm basically saying we yeah. need to have those conversations, and I'm very hopeful about the results. But they need to go beyond uh, what often has happened, where people have gone into, you know, corporations or in society in generally, and taught meditation, nonviolent communication. All these things are incredibly important. But there has been this other dimension of hidden structures that most people haven't followed. Yes, exactly. You know, I so wish that Freud had his nephew as a patient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's uh, long gone now. <laughs> Charles, am I hopelessly naive, or is there a possibility mm-hmm. for that level of dialogue to be 
sustained long enough to break through the belief systems. Talk about hidden structures. Those belief systems are based on on powerfully misguided perceptions that then form into belief systems, which then generate a whole style of living. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that that dialogues like that are um, useful, uh, but I, I don't think that they're enough. Um, because the the things that you know, like you you go in there and you and 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 they're useful because the two sides recognize the, their common humanity, you know, and it becomes impossible to demonize the other side. And you realize yes. then that the problem is much deeper. You know, I mean, I I meet people on the inside sometimes, and it's not that they're bad mm-hmm. people, you know, they're working for Monsanto no. or an investment bank or something, but they live inside of a story whose premises are so deep that they take them for reality itself. Mm. And if you question yes. those premises, it's like you're a lunatic, you know, you're questioning reality. Mm. I mean, how could you question that, you know, agricultural science isn't making the world better and better? Mm. I mean, what about the green revolution? What about this? What about that? You know, look at the crop yields before and after chemical fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. They have like this whole narrative yeah. that, that doesn't withstand that's out. right and and it doesn't withstand mm-hmm. careful scrutiny but they're not going to mm-hmm. give it careful scrutiny and if you challenge it you seem like you know an alien so i think what has to happen um is that the the deep operating stories have to break down and that is happening now because the results of this ideology of you know, progress through chemistry and so on and so forth yes. are not living a up to the A better world through promise. chemistry, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. a better world through chemistry. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not, where's the better world? Geez, you know, this is 2014. We were supposed to have it by exactly. now. Exactly. And, and so That's this, right. I, I think that this, um, this disintegration of our deep narratives, it, 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 most people aren't aware of it yet. It, it just lands on them as this kind of unease and this kind of um, half-heartedness, this feeling that they're just going through the motions, you know, and doing what they have to and not what they want yeah. to. But I think that it's, that it's bringing us toward a point of humility where, you know, Helena was saying before, um, you, you go to places that haven't been destroyed by development and you find so much, not that they're perfect, but you find um, so much more connection and and intergenerational connection, connection to land, connection to stories and traditions, Each you know, other. and, 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 to nature, yeah, and, this, and, as to Helena nature, and, and you're like, yesterday about that. and people, yeah. people feel called by that. There's some, there's an understanding that they have something that we want. So I think that the old mindset of development, where we arrogantly step in and say, Hey, hey here's how to do it. Cause our world is so much obviously better than yours. Look at the wonders we've created. You know, that arrogance is becoming harder to maintain as we look at the wreckage of what we've created. And so yes. now we're like, yeah, you know, we're becoming more open to the things that we've marginalized. Um, and I could say a lot more. So, you know, what you're both saying, in effect, is that there needs to be – I was talking about a, a, a conversation that was going to be disciplined enough and searing enough and persistent enough and – uh, factually based, not fictionally based, on science that any belief system 
that continued the deranged narrative would be deconstructed. I wasn't talking about just uh, tea and crumpets, you know, with a uh, uh, captain yeah. of industry. I was talking yeah. about let's get down to it, boys. Let's really but, get but Mitchell, down to it's the- so much. It's so much more complicated than that because even the institution that we call science has been greatly influenced by the deep narratives. You know, like oh, well, like yes. Dupont and Monsanto are calling their opponents unscientific, and where's the you know where are the peer-reviewed studies that show that genetically modified organisms are dangerous? Well, there are a few, but not as many as there should be because any researcher who goes into I just heard they can't get funded. From, they can't get funded. They can't get funded or they get threatened. Um, I just heard a story by this 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 guy um, was uh, talking to a top researcher in uh, in butterflies, and he said, you know, I heard a rumor. This must be an urban myth, but I heard a rumor that um, GMO crops were were killing the butterflies, but that can't be true, can it? And the guy was like, actually, um, it is true. We have a lot of data to show that, but when I tried to publish that data, Monsanto threatened me that I would never get a job in academia again. So it's I in my file drawer. Many, many scientists have had the same experience. This, and this is also why I think we have to look at this link between this money, the speculative money that's created out of thin air, is supporting the giants to promote monocultural production that is deadly biodiversity, cultural diversity, diversity is life. And we are on a course right now of giantism, speed, and mega dollars supporting this mega machine. I think that's the best way to understand it. And I would yeah. say that perhaps perhaps one of the mistakes has been that too many people in the environmental movement have thought, okay, well, if we're going to change this, we've got to talk to captains of industry. My experience is that when people are in positions of power, you know, particularly in big business, but even in government, they are operating in an even speedier way. They are even more distant from the realities of the social mm-hmm. community fabric. The they live in their own bubble. Fabric. They live in a bubble, and they live in a very speedy bubble. And I have yeah. found that they are going to be the least likely to listen to this new narrative and just to re, really re-examining the myths that they're basing their wealth extraction on. And I completely yes. agree with Charles. It's not that they're evil people. They're not even mm. consciously manipulating things, but they're going along with very convenient assumptions. So I think yes, that's, that's a, a good way of putting it. Yeah. Financially convenient huge, for them. Yeah. And I think there's a very huge opportunity for us to focus more on getting this narrative out to concerned citizens, you know, in all walks of life. I I think, you know, Paul Hawken was talking about a million NGOs. I think, you know, there are millions, if not billions, actually, of people who are engaged in one way or another doing something to make the world a better place. I mean, even yeah. those who have money to donate to the library at the school of their children, and often those the things they're doing are not necessarily very helpful, but they're coming out of a motivation to make the world a better place. They are yes. not captains of government or industry. They're not running fast inside a bubble of assumptions, but they have a little more time, a little more space, and they have some good intention, 
And I want us to try to focus on reaching them with a big-picture analysis that presents this sort of systemic trajectory away from globalizing, which means away from a type of reductionism and speed that is linked to simplistic ideas, simplistic in practice also, monoculture is simplistic, towards a path that gets in touch with the real complexity and diversity of life, the processes of life, the wealth of life, a life-enhancing path which means respecting diversity, and that means more human-scale extraction. You know, we're, all, we're, we're going to end up as human beings using nature in one way or another. We need to reduce the scale of how we do that. So reduce the carbon, the, the nature of the carbon footprint. No pun intended. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and it, it's more than just the carbon footprint, but definitely reducing the scale of that. And it's so basically the path that we recommend as we call it, you know, as a systemic direction, localizing instead of globalizing. It is completely connected to reducing scale and reducing speed, shortening the arms, you know, so these arms that have grown so long that we can't see what our hands are doing. We need to shorten the distances so that we can actually see the impact of what we do. And I just want to add that, you know, this is a movement that is happening. It's, it is most evident in the yes, local it is in worldwide. Vandana Shiva, the work you're yes. doing, uh, you know, all of the millions, literally millions. I, I've been uh, associated with the Pachamama Alliance and uh, yes. their, uh, you know, their good work down in uh, Ecuador in the Amazon rainforest. And, um you know, there's just so much that's going on worldwide. Uh, the work of the Grameen Bank and uh, Dr. Yunus, who thankfully won a, a peace, you know, a Nobel Peace Award for that. And uh, Actually, you know, this can is I just say something rat- about that? Please. Can I say something about that? You know, even though I believe that it could be possible, and and I'm sure it is possible for us to have. Uh, as I say, a certain degree of profit making and banks and and certain you know more modern technologies. One of the things that is is unfortunate is that even things like the Grameen Bank, as part of a global economy where the financial deregulation means that the value of your currency can change overnight because of speculation, and because yes. economic activity is so dominated by these giant monopolies, which, by the way, are also being subsidized by our tax money. So these giant banks and corporations have such a huge influence. Unfortunately, a lot of what the Grameen Bank has done is to go in and give loans to people who were not in debt. They've targeted rural women who had a bit of land, maybe had some chickens, were able to grow some food, and they brought in a loan, which sounds great, but actually it's creating debt where there wasn't debt, and it pulls them into dependence on this global disastrous speculative economy. So this is another thing that, you know, as part of our international alliance of localization, we have some very strong voices with a lot of experience on the ground around the world and in fact, I'm afraid one of the myths that we have to put to rest is that microcredit has been such a wonderful thing in the third world. We've got to realize that when the World Bank and Bill Clinton were promoting it, we should have been a little bit skeptical. 
Can I, can I add <laughs> to that? That's a very good point. Hey, let me so, let me add yeah. to that because and, and circle Please. it back to another theme. Um, I think what Helena, or one way that I see what Helena is talking about is, you know, you come in and you lend, you know, a thousand rupees to some woman in in India, and she has to pay back, you know, fifteen hundred rupees. You know, she has to pay it back with interest. And where is she going to get that money? She has to somehow create goods and services that she's going to sell to people, and it just kind of contributes to the monetization of what might have been a society dominated by reciprocity and sharing. And, and it just kind of puts this pressure to commoditize, to monetize. Um, and and, so and it, consumerism as well. Consumerism and and as consumerism well, and the whole thing. And, the, and so I think what happens, yeah. right, and I think, so I think what happens, you know, like certainly the people who are, you know, doing microcredit and, and other um, attempts to make the current system work a little bit better and make it more compassionate – I think what they're, what's going to happen is that they're going to go through a process of deepening radicalization where they realize that what had seemed like uh, a great idea is actually just uh, replaying the same dynamics as before. Um, I think that this happens also with the, you know, the CEOs and the people who want to make their company more green and more ecological, like, um, and they try to do it, but pretty soon they realize that, that the uh, – Eco side is built into their supply chain. You know, it's built into the regulatory environment. It's built into the system yeah. of subsidies. And yeah. and I think that. So I I, I actually I'm, I'm very moved and encouraged by the people in in corporations and and governments who are making these attempts. You know, it's it's a learning journey, and I guess the role of people like me and Helena is to say, you know. Okay, how does that how is that working for you? You know, do you see this problem that has only gotten worse and here's why and to kind of invite them into uh deeper radicalness. Yeah, and I think yeah. again, I'm not sure whether yeah, I think it's what we're talking about is a deeper and broader perspective. And that with that that broader and deeper perspective, there is a path that emerges that becomes clear, but of course, part of that is that these corporations have to shrink. They have to shrink into a scale where society is top dog. It's the so society that determines the rules for business rather you than bet. business shaping society. And that is what's happened in the modern era, is that essentially commercial bodies are shaping culture worldwide. And essentially they're imposing one global uh, stereotypical consumer culture. And previously this is entirely a function of the modern era, uh, this has never happened in our history. In our history, we evolved in social units in groups where the commercial activity was determined by society, not the other way around. Yes, it's a good point. Could you? I'd love to know relative to uh, uh, local futures and the good work that you've been doing for so long, and you know your whole experience with Ladakh is really just remarkable as kind of a a case study, as we were talking about yesterday, uh, of what happens when a, in a culture generally harmonious and sustainable, where people have a deep relationship to the land and to each other, uh, and they've, they've evolved their own economics, and it works, and no one is hungry, and no one is poor. The concept of poverty probably doesn't even exist. 
and uh, yet when it gets influenced by Western culture, all hell breaks loose. I'm wondering if in other areas that you have worked in, Helena, you have seen, what kind of transitions have you seen as a result of this wonderful grassroots movement of localization occurring? Can you give us an example of one that uh, feels to you is really kind of turning the corner on this? Well, I, I mean, I think the most important is the local food movement. And, in fact, in America, there's a lot that's been happening in the last 20 years. You know, now there are about 8,000 new farmers' markets, which is as many, many as there are banks, apparently. There are 8,000 mm. banks. And that yes. movement has grown very rapidly. Uh, but that it needs to be greatly strengthened. It needs to be broadened, and, and it needs to be deepened because it's, continues to be threatened by commercial forces that, you know, a lot of these things start off at a human scale with wonderful mm-hmm. cooperation between farmers and consumers. And by the way, one of the most heartening trends for me is the young farmers movement, which you see around the world, young people who have lived in the city, grown up in the city, who actually want to go out and farm. And you know, it's even happening in China, it's even happening in India, but it's particularly strong in more industrialized countries. And and so many of them, when they have the opportunity to sell to a local market, in other words, not too far away, they can be part of a small-scale, diversified farm, often influenced by permaculture, and they find that way of life vastly more enjoyable than sitting in front of a computer all day in the, in the big city in a high-rise building. Uh, wow. But but what does what do we need to make that possible on a larger scale? We need to stop subsidizing giant corporations like Monsanto, like Coca-Cola and McDonald's, and they are literally subsidized by our tax dollars. Yes, true. Creating a situation where around the world food from thousands of miles away costs less than food from one mile away. That's a completely yeah. artificial situation. We need yeah, the, more than anything also to change regulations. We are deregulating the global players while we are overregulating smaller local businesses that are yeah, not able true. to survive because of all kinds of red tape. So shifting regulations, subsidies, and taxes is something that neither the political left nor the political right have been discussing. That is what we need to start discussing, and we need a new movement for a new economy. Exactly. Charles, your thoughts? Um, Yeah, I would agree with Helena that that, it doesn't get more basic than food. Um, And currently... You know, when I was a kid, to say, well, Dad, I'm going to become a farmer, that was almost inconceivable, you know, where yes. where progress, you know, was, was you get more and more education, you become more professional, you know, you get a, you know, you become an engineer or a lawyer. A doctor or, something. or a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now, everywhere, there are, like, like she was saying, you know, young people are abandoning that story of what a successful life is. And that story has really deep roots. You know, it, it has um, roots in the whole conquest and, and transcendence of nature, where humanity's destiny would be to to 
become completely independent of nature and we wouldn't need agriculture, you know, that's a vestige of the past because we would have, Mm -hmm. you know, clean scientific hydroponics or synthetic food or something like that. And I think that that the movement back toward agriculture is in part a manifestation of the um, transition in our stories. And we still have a lot of um, infrastructure and regulatory infrastructure that is enforcing the old story. So, for example, the the direct and indirect subsidies. I mean, why is it cheaper? Why is lettuce from California cheaper than lettuce from Pennsylvania, where I live? Well, it's because the transportation network is subsidized, uh, and and it doesn't reflect its true costs to the environment and to society. And so, um, yeah, we need to, we need to uh, again uh, work on all levels. But even with those hidden subsidies, still. People are making a go of it, um, farming on a local level, and yeah, if, and I think, think it's if so inspiring, yeah, 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 and if those subsidies were were removed, um, it would just explode. You know, it it's would. not that That's far away. Where we want to go is not that far away. And I want to mention also that our Voices of Hope symposium, Michael Schumann, who is one of the leading voices in trying to shift finance to support local mm-hmm. businesses and to make it possible. Yes. In fact, you know what? I wanted to, in our closing minutes, uh, review the uh, speakers that will be at this event that we've been speaking about here, the Voices of Hope in a Time of Crisis. Could you, Helena, just walk us through uh, some of the speakers who will be present there? Yes. Well, Michael Schumann, I just mentioned, is an economist and a lawyer and and has been a leading proponent of of local finance and localization generally with a lot of experience in the United States. Judy Wicks, who started something called Ballet, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, again focused on shortening distances, reestablishing a connection between the producers and the consumers. In her case, she started with her own restaurant, where she connected with local farmers and so on. And this business alliance has grown into now, I think it's something like 30,000 businesses in the U.S., and it's being copied, this model is being copied around the world. Um, Bayo Akomolafe, Charles knows him well, a clinical psychologist from Nigeria, who is a, who, um, you know understands and is speaking out on both the personal, individual, identity crisis, but also the cultural identity crisis around the world, a passionate voice for more localized, diversified ways of living. Uh, Manish Jain, who is Indian, but he he grew up in in America uh, for most of his youth. He graduated from Harvard, worked at both the World Bank and I think Goldman Sachs, and then realized that this system was not working went back to learn from his illiterate grandmother in India, and he's got mm. one of the leading institutes in the world rethinking education and development. Uh, Camila mm. Moreno from Brazil, a beautiful, articulate voice again for localization and a strong opponent to these free trade treaties and globalization. Mm-hmm. Chris Hedges, who I'm so privileged and happy to know, and he's, he's one gotcha. of the leading voices from the left who is embracing localization. Laura yeah, Flanders from Grit yeah. TV, if you've sure. heard of Laura Flanders, 
who's oh, also sure, become sure. a localist. Uh, a close friend of mine, Catherine Ingram, who will be coming at this from the personal transformation perspective. As yes, a I know teacher. Catherine very well. Yep. And and Peter Buffett. And uh, Elizabeth uh, Yampierre. Yes, that's right. That's right. She, I actually don't know personally, but Kristen, Kristen Steele, who works with us, uh, has met her, and she's been a, yes. a very active in 350.org and in the climate movement. Yes. I met her recently, right before the climate march. We had a, a big shindig downtown near Union Square at ABC Carpet with Bill McKibben and Robert Kennedy and others. So she was one of the outspoken voices there as well. So mm. you have assembled a, a wonderful team. And Charles Eisenstein. Do not of forget course. Charles yes. Eisenstein. Yes. yes, And I should mention that Bill McKibben, Vandana Shiva, David Corton, you know, there are very many strong voices who are part of our alliance and who are in the film, The Economics of Happiness, which people yes. find a very useful sort of mobile conference that they can bring into their local community and then start discussing about what they can do. What can we do uh, uh, about these multiple crises? And, and the beauty of what we're talking about is that there is a strategic, systemic part of change. So we don't keep treating individual symptoms and individual problems because I think even when we look at things in that way, in that more reductionist way, we end up feeling completely overwhelmed and, and disempowered. It is really, really helpful to see how these crises connect and to see yes. that there's a systemic path out of out of the mess we find ourselves in. Yes, I very much appreciate that. Charles, your closing thoughts? Um, I I don't have any 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 really thing to add add I mean to to the conference although I I feel like um, I hope people in New York come to it there's a kind of uh, energy that's generated at events like that where yes. where people you know they're walking around having like these kind of secret doubts and 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 then you go to a place a conference like that. And the things that have been in your head are being spoken out loud and reflected back to you. Yes. And then you go home and you don't feel quite as crazy anymore. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. Well, what, we're, so what, what conferences so like this, what conferences like this do, uh, as you well put it, Charles, is it creates, uh, I would put it this way, a consensus around our deep inner thoughts and feelings, uh, around the doubt, for sure as well as around the hope. And we don't want to be doubting alone, and we fear that we are. And we don't want to be hoping alone in our own bubble, and we fear that we are. And we don't want to be considered naive, and we don't want to be considered to be a doubting Thomas. So contexts like you're creating here, Helena, is a very healthy uh, socially healthy kind of environment for people to speak their truth, listen to others, get agreement, have healthy, uh, you know, uh, dialogue to help expand the thinking around the subjects that are so. These are life and death subjects. This is not like uh, what what color should we paint the living room. This is about whether we're going to survive as a species after some several 
billion years in our development where we're not and we're going to bring, you know, the rest of the species and sentient life down. That's how important this subjects of your conference are. So that's why I wanted to have you on A Better World. Yeah. I, and I, I also maybe just should mention that I've recently got to know Russell Brand. And Russell Brand, I don't know if people know him, but he's mm-hmm. just come out with a book called Revolution. Yes. And he quotes me there more than anybody else. So yes. he's getting he's getting a lot it's of because you're uh, so funny. interest around the world. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I know. Yes. In fact, I was, uh, he's very funny and quite quirky, yes. as people probably know. But I'm I'm very happy about that because he does have quite a big reach, um, and yes. so I don't know how well he know how well known he is in America, but uh, but certainly in in many other yes, countries, a lot of young people are very very excited about his um, his reach. Yeah, he's he's wonderful. A lot of people. Yeah. Yes. And so totally. I think there is there is a waking up going on, and the word is getting out, and you know we call the film the economics of happiness because. Part of the whole localizing path is this reconnection that does bring a sense of joy, and really it brings us back to who we are. It, we we actually connect with our deeper humanity, and as I say, our longing to belong. Well, you know, I, I very much appreciate that. That is also a path of survival. So it's the economics of happiness and it's the economics of survival. Oh, by all means, that they go together. By- all means. You know, I, I want to leave us with a thought that doesn't sound happy, but uh, ultimately it really, I believe, is that uh, Harris poll recently taken showed that most Americans, I mean 70 to 80 percent, are unhappy in general. Yes. Yes. And uh, I think that's 70 percent, and they say 80 percent are unhappy at their job which echoes That's something right. we were discussing earlier about the That's mechanistic, right. you know, kind of role. Yes. So the good news of being unhappy is that you seek to want to be happy and willing to take the steps to be happy. <laughs> so, yes, and I, just I so just hope that people hear about both. what we're talking about rather than going down the path of, of, of some kind of medication. You know, there's so many young people who have anxiety and depression and they're being encouraged to take drugs, and there is a yes. far faster and really more satisfying path, and and that's so. Anyone who's interested in these issues, I hope God knows. The Cooper Union. Thank on you November. very much. Thank you, Elena Norberg Hodge. Thank you for all of your good work. It continues. It's sustainable. And it's really being heard by my audience here at A Better World and uh, on my other shows. I really want to thank you again for for your good work. Charles Eisenstein, it's a pleasure to meet you for a first time. And uh, we'll have you back on another occasion to further develop and cultivate our uh, conversation around sacred economics and your other, your other thinking. Thanks, Mitchell. Thank you, Absolutely. Mitchell. And thank you, Charles. Yeah, thanks, Lena. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. See you soon. See you soon. Okay, we'll see each other at the event. Okay. Bye-bye. Great. Bye, everybody. Thanks again. Bye-bye now. Wow, I hope you were enriched by that as I was. Uh, You know, you can be enriched and not necessarily... 
be profiting at the same time in the usual monetized way. Profit can be spiritually realized, as uh, you just witnessed just now. Uh, yeah, these folks are doing such wonderful work in helping to promote a better world, which, uh, hello, that's why we have them on these airwaves and are so grateful for all of you who listen in. So uh, one uh, more round just to let you all know that uh, November 8th, Saturday from 10 to 6 at the Great Hall uh, Cooper Union will be this event. And uh, it has just a wonderful series of people. Others that might not have been mentioned in that lineup is Peter Buffett, an Emmy Award winner, uh, musician, philanthropist, who's composed the score for 500 Nations, the CBS miniseries produced by Kevin Costner, and many, many other, many other projects. Scott Chasky, author, poet, philanthropist, and farmer, runs Quail, Quail Hill Farm in Amagansett, New York. He's uh, one of the first C- CSAs in the United States, author of Seed Time on the History husbandry, and politics, politics and promise. Every interesting, very interesting folks, all of them. So uh, if you are in the general tri-state area, certainly you would want to uh, come as well. If the first five people who contact me by listening to this show at MJR at abetterworld.net, send me an email with Voices of Hope in the subject line. The first five will be given a ticket for free. Uh, otherwise, depending on your age, it's anywhere from 15 to 25 to $50 for the day. So uh, that is something that we would like to offer you our loyal listeners. So that's mjr at abetterworld.net, my direct email address, and put into the subject line Voices of Hope and uh, some contact information, and I'll make sure you get a ticket if you're among the first five that contact me. So with that, make sure to go to abetterworld.tv and get a... uh, on the list for a free newsletter which announces our Monday evening shows uh, on Manhattan Cable Network here in New York City in the Big Apple, although it can be heard online at the same website as well every Monday. Wherever you may be on the planet, you can tune in at 7 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time and uh, become part of a better world by watching or Tuesdays on Progressive Radio Network, Gary Knoll's wonderful station. I'm on every every Tuesday at 3 p.m., and Helena was my guest yesterday, where we feature a documentary progressive film, and it's called Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin. And uh, you can hear all of these in archive, both at our website and at prn.fm. And, of course... On Blog Talk Radio, A Better World with Mitchell Rabin, every Wednesday at 6 p.m.
thanks again for joining. So appreciate. Please know also that we uh, operate all of our media on a shoestring budget. We so appreciate those of you who are able to reach into your pockets either once or monthly, even if it's for 5 or $10. Believe me, it sounds funny, but every a bit helps. And honestly, our paradigm is we'd rather get a little bit from a lot of people. Um, and that way, everything stays nice and even. And uh, we also do promotions at fees for different kinds of events and uh, books, etc. And A Better World Promotions is the company that does that using our media and newsletter and website. So uh, please bear us in mind when it comes to such things. We do a fabulous job in getting the word out to many different localities. We are international in scope, so uh, please know that. And thanks again for joining, and I look forward to speaking with you all next